to take this opportunity to formally open proceedings of the show. It's my gavel. It's my knock and gavel. Um, and I'm going to say uh, welcome once again to your weekly episode of Trash Future, the podcast about how the future is, in fact, shockingly trash still. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was counting week. on that. You thought it was going to get better, didn't you? Yeah, we all did. Well, we are going to hear a lot about some people who are trying to reinvent the future uh, in order to make it uh, better or crueler and more asinine. We'll find out. I mean, we're going to think that the future is trash up to the point when Alan de Botton's School of Life buys us. Uh And then we contractually (laughs) contractually have to say, actually, the future is wonderful and it's great. Yeah. And it's completely fine. about how cheating on my wife actually made her a better wife. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it induced induced competition, right? And you so, need a market. Right? Yeah, and so there's it's all a market-based answer. Yeah, and so my dick is yeah. scarce. <laughs> That's not what I've heard. That's not what I've heard. It's not small. It's scarce. <laughs> isn't this like? Isn't this exactly this what Ayn Rand's like? Isn't this like Ayn Rand's life? So like, her husband was cheating on her, but she was like, "Well, that's fine because like in a market economy." Like he should be allowed to exercise oh, his choices. Funny. I don't know. I don't know. Whether, I don't know whether that's. I don't know whether like that's completely true. But I got it from Adam Curtis documentary, and therefore, like, I'm going. I'm going with it, man. Oh, I'm gonna if edit it's not in. True, it should be. I'm gonna edit in one of the one of those Adam Curtis songs. <laughs> um, back in the bowl, triumphantly. Wait, what? What do you actually want from me? Introduce yourself. Introduce yourself, you dumbass. Oh, fuck. Uh, It's it's me. The the best introduction you can have of me is me going, oh, shit, I have to say something now. Um, Yeah, uh, it's me, Milo Edwards, back in the bowl, as per usual. You you may remember me from every previous episode of this podcast. You can find me on Twitter, at Milo underscore Edwards. Hell yeah. Hi, my name is Olga. I'm a comedian. My Twitter handle is at Rollga, and you may recognize me from the bass section of the KPMG anthem. (laughs) Rip of the end, right? Okay. Uh, my name's Hussein Kizvani. I'm the lost member of Team 10. Uh, you can, you can he, he was the six-year-old kidnapped by Jake Paul, no, who's no. now grown up. I'm a large adult son now. Um, <laughs> you can follow me at H Kizvani. I'm trying to like... So someone told me this week, friend of the show, Ash Sarka, she just basically tweeted me and she said, stop tweeting. So I'm trying to follow that principle. Um, uh, 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 wait, is Ash Sarkar the person screaming outside your house saying log off? Yes, but I'm willing to like, I am, I'm very happy to log off because like she scares me in a good way. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think, I think we're all universally in agreement on that one. Yeah. So like, I still have bad tweets on that, but they're less bad than usual for now. And our esteemed guest. Yeah. Tom Kibassi. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Tom Kibassi. Uh, and during the week I run think tank IPPR. Uh, but this is Sunday, so I'm here in a personal capacity, <laughs> a holy personal capacity. You're, you're the head of the think tank called the IPPR, which is a think tank that advocates no peeing. That that's got it exactly right. right. It, it's yeah. it's it's in order to get Britain into like power mindset. Yeah. You know, it's the only way we're going to get through Brexit properly as a nation. If we just believe it's great, is I, if we hold it. <laughs> okay. I read this great paper by the IPPR, which basically said that the way to 
create a productive economy across the country is by not peeing for one day a week, listening to five podcasts at three times the speed mm-hmm. and going for a 10K run once every two days. Yeah, yeah, that's Jay Shetty right there. Yeah. Guys, we got content. And Do instead it. of asking you guys if we're going to go to it, I'm just going to fucking go to it. Because You're a pickup artist. today, yeah, I'm being Do assertive. I'm, I'm negging all of you guys. Uh, I think, you know, I think like, like you guys have lovely nails and I want to know where you can get such nice fakies. <laughs> um, yeah. No. Yeah. So we got... Hey, Hussein, I guess that's a pretty good body pillow for a normie. <laughs> <laughs> My grandmother looks just like that body pillow. Whoa. Um, so we got like fucking content today and it sort of coalesced around the theme of just the sort of, I, I want to say like obstinate idiocy of free marketeers. Mm-hmm. And I'm so excited to get to some of it. Um, Delicious. And our first, our, our, our first thing today is uh, a pair of, I think, genuine brain geniuses, <laughs> like guys who must just, who like, you know, like the Mars Attacks aliens, how they have giant brains and fishbowls for heads? Like, yeah. that's who these guys are. Yeah. Uh, Rupert Younger and Frank Portnoy. Giants of our age. Uh, yeah, the truly, the, the in- intellectual titans have written an article saying, what would Karl Marx write today? <laughs> So I'm thinking young God. adult fiction. There's not, an, there's not a market in political economy. It's just going nowhere, right? Or maybe like a kind of slightly better version of Fifty Shades or something. <laughs> no, no. Karl Marx would, like, he wouldn't be writing at all. He'd be like, he'd be doing manga. Man. No, he'd be tweeting. Karl Marx <laughs> yeah. would be a poster and a podcaster today, obviously. Yeah, yeah actually, he'd obviously be making memes. Here, here is this. Uh, 200 years after the philosopher's birth, two staunch believers in capitalism have rewritten the Communist Manifesto, Great. editorializing for some reason. Yeah, that's, it's really baffling. <laughs> Like, why you would want to do that? Like, like some bizarre social experiment. Or like a Weird Al Yankovic kind of like terrible parody song where it's like, it's, it's like this famous song, but it's about like grilled cheese now. <laughs> um, here's how these two um, intellectual titans of our age have opened their activist manifesto, as they call it. Cool. A specter is haunting the world. The specter of activism. <laughs> All the powers of the old world have entered into a holy alliance to exercise this specter. It is high time the activists in the face of the whole world publish their views. So what these guys have done, essentially, is they have rewritten the Communist Manifesto, but removing all references to class. Changing all of its meanings, yes. Yes, they've rewritten it. But they're very proud that they've retained 74% of the words that don't matter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Every word that does matter. I All of the like ands, the, buts, and thes are completely retained, faithful to the original. Yeah, exactly. They very proudly say that they did a uh, search and replace, a find and replace in their Word document for proletariat and bourgeoisie. Oh. They replace them with just the haves and have-nots, right? Haves and have-nots, that's right. It's and not a class struggle anymore, Riley. No, no, it's just we're, no, we're all a team, you know, we're going, you know what it is? We're going back to um, Weitling, we're going back to the uh, League of the Just before Marx and Engels got in there, where there were no all men are brothers. Isn't, isn't the haves and have nots just like a dumber way of saying the bourgeoisie and the proletariat? I mean, it's not, it's it's like materially not that different, but just like for written in like a reading age of a 10 year old. It's much less elegant. Yeah, and also like the term have not implies that at some point they can be a haver. Right. Yeah. So it's kind of just like neutering these terms. And mm. yeah, I mean, they've effectively written 
I wouldn't even say it's a kid's book because even kids' books like are much more nuanced than that. So I'm well, not really sure what they've done. You know what these guys have done? Remember when Ian Miles Chong did his recut of Star Wars The Last Jedi because he was mad that it had a prominent female character? Yeah. So yes. he, he cut all the female roles out to make it a 30-minute movie with all men but no plot. No, I mean that's like what that's basically what they've done. Yeah, which that's what, what movie should be like. Which is also what Ian Miles Chong does with all of his favorite porn films. <laughs> what he said is so how did the two of us, the article goes on, uh, come to take on the renovation of the manifesto? The answer is our interest in a linchpin of modern free market capitalism, shareholder activism. <laughs> Shocking. So when I first read that, I, I just started to think to myself, Holy is shit. this just a parody? It's the entire thing meant to be a, a, just a parody of itself. But it goes on and on and on. So imagine first writing this, but imagine then reading it and deciding it should be in a newspaper. That is just utterly baffling. Is okay. shareholder activism what, like, Brewdog would, did with the pink IPA? Yes, pink, pink IPA for where all the people who get pink eye when they rubbed shit in their eyes after reading about Brewdog introducing that. Well, shareholder activism, as far as they see it, is basically people with money buying big stakes in companies and then voting to see how they... To, to, influence their direction oh i thought that was when like morgan stanley organizes like a half marathon in aid of like computers from mongolians or something <laughs> and then all of the like investment bankers get to pretend that they're good people no, that's called day. social responsibility come on Milo. <laughs> oh yeah shit the only the only like the only experience i have of shareholder activism is that scene in the dark knight rises um and i'm already saying that because i want milo to see the bane impression again <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know exactly which bit you're referring to. You know, you know the um, bit. So, like, when when Bane like starts capturing the city, capturing the city. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh that's bad. Uh, that's really bad. Um, that, that went quite carry on. So, so basically, what he sees is the what what basically these guys see is when they say the activist manifesto, they basically mean we want to solve all the world's problems without changing any of its property relations, more or less. So they say. Uh, moreover, um, many of the haves, so the wealthy, uh, can be allies in this struggle because they're activists already, pushing for various beneficial policies. Think of billionaires such as Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and Mark Zuckerberg, who yes. support philanthropic... Do think of them. Do <laughs> think of them. They've been having a hell of a time lately. <laughs> who already support philanthropic efforts to alleviate inequality. Likewise, many corporations already advocate for environmental and social causes. State-of-the-art approaches to corporate governance already take into account pay inequality, workers' rights, and more. Although I do quite like the idea of Marx uh, coming up with the term state-of-the-art approaches to corporate governance <laughs> as code for nationalization. <laughs> this is just, this isn't nationalization, this is a state-of-the-art approach to corporate governance. <laughs> well, it's the, um, it, it, again, it's the, they're just, they, they seem to think think like it's it, it, this is just this is just this weird blinkered liberalism where they just think yeah we're all friends we're all in it together no one has any opposed interests and actually we should let you know warren buffett and mark zuckerberg colonize the moon and then we get the benefit of being their organ farms well but, but there is a productive member of society intergalactic society but it, but it does speak yeah. to a, a much wider thing, doesn't it? That, that there is this sort of um, thing that you get on the page of the FT and some other places that sort of assumes that you solve the current problems of the economy and society by just sort of encouraging people at the top just to be a bit nicer. That you don't really need to reform or change any of the relations between any parts of society or restructure the economy because you can just say, if everyone could just be a bit nicer to each other, it would all be fine. Yeah. So it, it locates itself in a much bigger 
yeah. thing that's going on that you that you see in the sort of heights of neoliberalism, right? There's the kind of like friend neoliberalism with a smile, mm-hmm. and it'll kind of all be fine. Sure, I don't pay any tax, but do you know how many Mongolians now have computers as a direct <laughs> result of my donations? Because, and that's but that's yeah, so many of their efforts to like alleviate inequality tend to, and this is where I sort of, I always take issue with the Bill Gates thing, where say, oh, Bill Gates is great, he does so much charity. It's like, yeah, but the charity Bill Gates does is he's just appropriated an enormous amount of wealth by like, partly by starving the public sector, and then he turns around to the public sector and says, I'll fund your schools if yeah. you do my curriculum. And his curriculum is A, just him doing an experiment on low-income Americans, but B, it's him also training his future workforce. You know, so mm-hmm. it's it's what it really what I think a lot of this really comes down to is the kind of painting a philanthropic face on lar- just on, on, on largely like pro billionaire policies written by billionaires. Who'd have thought billionaires would write pro billionaire policies? Oh fuck! I just realized what Huel is. They're trying to get us all drinking it so that then in a few years' time we'll be much more nutritious when they turn us into Soylent. <laughs> exactly. No, Tom, I, you were saying? I, I actually don't agree with you on that. So yeah. I, I don't think you can look at the, the Bill Gates. Well, I agree with you on the Huel thing, but I don't agree with you on the uh, on that point about what is the motivation of Bill Gates in doing this. So the problem is not that this is some nefarious plan to really turn Detroit into a new source of workers for Microsoft. I don't buy any of that kind of stuff. The problem with it is a different problem. It's that by having so much wealth be able to be concentrated in one person, one family, with the, the sort of, what, 80 billion, 90 billion that Bill Gates has, that it then means that, that actual really big questions for society about how should kids be educated and what's important lose their democratic character because it just comes down to the views of one individual because he has such an enormous amount of wealth and power. And I think that's the problem with it. It's fundamentally undemocratic. And you create a structure in society that says... This guy uh, gets to decide what your kids are going to learn about. Not, it's not a question that's negotiated between different parts of society as a whole. And that's to do with concentration of wealth and power. But personally, Trump, like billionaires are the only people I trust with really important decisions like which color of car should be in space. <laughs> <laughs> and should we nuke North Korea? I mean, I'm against, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm against all billionaires except for white coke. So um, I'm looking forward to the white coat, like fashion curriculum. It's mm, so bad. Hell yeah. It's so bad. But That's amazing. The fact that I have the same last name as him is a complete coincidence. I repeat, complete coincidence. I'm not related or affiliated with the Koch brothers at all. <laughs> no, I mean, we should... We should... <laughs> Olga slowly pulls on a jacket over her very aggressive Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> can, I, can I just point out that actually it does show you what money can buy you, the Koch brothers. Yeah. Because they've managed to persuade the entire world to call them the Koch brothers rather than the Koch brothers. <laughs> 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 it shows you what billions can do, right? I mean, the name is objectively exactly. spelled. It shows cock. that you could get one of those rare things, a shirt that works in the boardroom at the discotheque. <laughs> do you think after a hard day's work being billionaires, they like to treat themselves with a nice refreshing glass of diet cock? Marx and Engels were revolutionaries, but also pragmatic. <laughs> they wanted their ideas to be discussed as real alternatives. If they were alive today, we are convinced they would promote activism rather than revolution as a powerful social force. If only the activists and various areas, financial, environmental, political, corporate, and social, could unite. There is a strand of activism running through not only the, and everybody bite down in your wallet, this is to the listeners as well, there is a strand of activism running through not only the Arab Spring, Trump, Brexit, and Macron, but also through hedge funds pressuring underperforming companies. <laughs> hedge fund managers of the world unite. Where you have not- <laughs> it's, like a, 
Where you have nothing to lose but your chains. That, you that is like a Venn chains. diagram <laughs> of things where the Venn diagram circle is just labelled completely unrelated things and the other Venn diagram circle is other completely unrelated things. I, re- I really like how they associate revolution with like the, like the Macron victory. Mm-hmm. As if it was, you know, as if it was like this kind of actual thing and not, you know, a bunch of people that would rather like have some like fucking dipshit in rather than a fascist. Yeah, at least worse um, choice. But then also it's kind of interesting, right? To sort of put yourself on the same moral plane as people fighting for their democratic rights in the Arab Spring <laughs> and losing their lives. And you saying that a hedge fund, you know, taking an activist position, it's just, it actually is morally squalid, right? Hey, look, all I'm saying is that, like, yeah. you know, the gunning down of, like, 50 active, like fifty activists in Tyra Square, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of akin to, like, you know, Hugh Bottomley Jones losing his bonus. Just, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, he won't be able to go How? skiing and, you know, renew his monocle subscription. And that's so. like being dead. <laughs> Yeah, how many Mongolians got computers as a result of the Arab Spring? Zero. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last last line, last line from this. And then we're going to move on to an article that if this didn't boil your brain, the next one will. It made my eyes bleed, actually. Um, Just to so be precise. They say, look... The original manifesto's proposals wouldn't get a passing grade today in any setting. Left and right alike reject its arguments on labor and property. <laughs> Do they really? Do they really? Do they really? <laughs> yeah, the, the radical left represented by, checks notes, Tony Blair. Yes. Oh, yes, yes. The, the Marxists who are famously anti-Marx. <laughs> the neoliberal Marxists. <laughs> so one of the most important texts in the history of mankind apparently wouldn't get a passing grade. No, got it. It wouldn't get a passing grade now. <laughs> but ultimately, I think I think Tom, what you said earlier is, is spot on, which is largely that you know neoliberalism has looked or the, the two sort of avatars of neoliberalism have been like marionetted around to like look at a classic anti-liberal text and have largely said, oh hey, maybe if we change twenty six percent of the words, uh, we can utterly transform the meaning, and hey, maybe we can update Marx and Engels to make them say the opposite of what they meant. But on the other hand, it is worth now knowing that we have a statistic that we did not know before, which is that 26% of the words in the Communist Manifesto really matter. (laughs) (laughs) It's like like revolutionary for publishing and the idea Hmm. that actually like lots of words in the English language do not need to actually be like there. They don't need to exist. So these guys... Also, I was wondering, like, how is it, does it qualify as a rewrite where they kept most words? Surely that's not a rewrite. Well, it's like, you know, okay, it's just they like... kept the words that changed the meaning. <laughs> Holy shit, it's a Director's fanfic. Director's cut. Yeah, it's a fanfic. It's a, fan, it's, it's it's a, a furry fanfic. It's a capitalist fanfic about the Communist Manifesto. So we should write one. We should write one where we remove... <laughs> it becomes a manifesto about how Karl Marx touched her can. We should write one where we remove, like, uh, you know, 50% of the words from Das Capital, but we replace it with, like, furry porn uh, thick that we get from Tumblr. <laughs> I want the Justin Trudeau uh, reimagining that's called the People Festo. <laughs> <laughs> and, there go- and, there's the- and there's the button on that segment. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've selected a, a, a next reading so to, clo- to sort of close out this segment before we go into our next section. One of the, one of the things Tom, Tom is, is an expert on is healthcare. Uh, you would say you're roughly an expert on healthcare, yeah, right? Sure. You, you, you sort of help some governments do some stuff with healthcare. Yeah. yeah. Let's just say Tom knows what he's talking about. Um, and this is an older article, uh, but it, it, and it's the first one, I think, by Megan McArdle we've ever read. Uh, if you're not familiar with Megan McArdle, Brain genius, Megan McArdle. She 
has like double digit brain cells. Like she's a real genius. So what did she say about Grenfell again? Because I forgot, but well, it was awful, wasn't it? Yeah, well, uh, and this is, again, this is sort of referencing uh, a, a Chapo episode from a while back, but they read an article of hers where she said, actually, it wouldn't have made sense to install sprinkler systems in Grenfell because that could have pushed the price of housing up a little bit or pushed the prices up for the developers if you fireproof something like Grenfell. And it might have meant that people might have had to live slightly further outside of the center and maybe more people would have died in accidents from longer commutes than burned to death in Grenfell. So actually... That is the most idiotic thing I think I've ever heard. That's actually just like the galaxy brain meme. And I thought the Communist Manifesto rewrite was going to win the prize for idiocy. I told you. But it turns out (laughs) there is a better candidate. So that's who this is. And she's a regular, she appears regularly on, on Chapo. She's a favorite reading subject of theirs. But this was sort of so perfect for Tom that we're going we're gonna to do a Megan McArdle article. Because if you, do you recall uh, how a couple of months ago, um, Amazon, JP Morgan, and Berkshire Hathaway, yeah, we're going to sort of basically try to do a um, corporate single payer, more or less, healthcare. They were going to try to transform healthcare through a corporate merger of some kind. In the crossover superhero movie blockbuster of the summer. (laughs) The Healthcare Avengers. Uh, (laughs) Well, (laughs) Megan McArdle has taken her genius to basically write an apologia for that particular abomination. I mean, at, at the start of all this, it's kind of a, a, a bit of a joy, right? Because it's it's a bit like, you know, when Uber and Lyft were like, we're going to think of this new innovation. It's going to be a multi-person vehicle that goes from destination to destination. And it has different people who get on and off. We're not sure what to call it. And that, like the rest of society was like, that's called a bus, right? There is a name for it already. It's just called a bus. Yeah, um, exactly. Like we have invented this great new thing. This this Amazon thing is a bit like the observation that that you know the rest of the world had a very long time ago, which is maybe you should provide healthcare for everyone. So they have a million lives covered in their scheme. I'll tell you what's better than a million lives covered. There's 65 million lives covered in the UK through the NHS, uh, and in uh, the US, you know what would work a lot better than a million lives? It would be 320 million lives covered, which would be a single pair for the United States. <laughs> Very simply, that that might be the answer here. Well, let's keep that in mind as we go into the reading. So, can Amazon transform healthcare? Megan McArdle asks a rhetorical question in her headline. It's not a crazy idea. It's not crazy. It's not crazy, I swear. (laughs) Healthcare costs are a bit like the weather, she opens geniusly. Everyone talks about them, but no one does anything about it. When we think that the weather is something that you could do something about. <laughs> yeah, Megan McCarroll really wishes right. we could just, you know. we Our could weather machine. Yeah, why isn't big government taking control of the weather? Because <laughs> only Poseidon does that. They differ in this regard. People want to do something about healthcare costs. So now she's saying everyone likes the weather. I'm not really sure. She's a great writer, guys. Um, and yet those costs have long outpaced inflation and are projected to reach one-fifth of the U.S. GDP by 2025. <laughs> it's a real stumper, Is Megan McArdle advocating that we blow up the sun? Uh, she's Mr. Burns, I think. <laughs> I feel like at some point she will pen an article which says we just need to blow up the sun. 
No, she's going to say, let the free market blow up the sun. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So a partnership of Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan is forming between them an independent company, quote, free from profit-making incentives and constraints to provide U.S. employees and their families with simplified, high-quality, and transparent health care at a reasonable cost, enabling them to tackle the enormous challenges of health care and harness its full benefits. Okay, first question. Um, Mary, fuck, kill, Amazon, J.P. Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> but like it's it's really interesting, right? Um, that a famous libertarian has said, "Hey, maybe free from profit making constraints, they'll finally be able to provide the service." Except that isn't really what they've said at all. All they've said is that their profit making motive is more important than the healthcare company's profit making motive, right? So for them, healthcare is an expense. So they want to keep the expenditure down. And why do they want to keep the expenditure down? So they can have higher profits for themselves. It's just a different profit-making motive. It's not free from a profit-making motive. I I love how they still bother to, like, lie through their tits. Through their teeth, like, oh yeah, we don't have any profit-making motive in this. Like a fucking vampire opening a blood bank and being like, no, I just want to improve society. <laughs> John Rental does on his own time. <laughs> in fact, uh, they say, and if they can, more power to them. Megan McArdle continues, Amazon at all. Paying Amazon and others an outlandish profit would be well worth it if they could actually dam up the river of money that flows into the healthcare system every year. Wait, let's just get that straight. So what you want to do is to spend more money on Amazon and less money on treating people who are sick and curing disease. Well, Tom, it's because all that money... great. It's because all that money flowing into the healthcare system, it's it's like a law of physics. We can't do anything about it, and it just happens naturally. Absolutely. It's not a policy choice. Nothing to do with drug companies and insurers or policy choices it just happens and we have no idea how and remember like libertarians say we can't do anything about it yeah i want to be able to do things conveniently like ask alexa why my penis is leaking and then she laughs at you (laughs) i really you know funnily enough like someone who was talking about this was uh none of none of it but our personal friend of the show martin shakrali um, who's now in prison, but on one of his like YouTube... Love you, Martin. Miss you every day. <laughs> You're pouring one out from a man, Martin. <laughs> pouring out a bottle of AIDS medication from a man, Martin. Um, but on like one of his gaming streams once, he was talking about like... <laughs> He was, he, was, he was talking about like how he... Like one of his big plans, once he had like beaten the feds, um, was that he wanted to start his own healthcare company um, to provide private sector healthcare at like a really affordable cost. It's, it's, only it's a bit like affordable housing here, right? Oh, it's, it's, it's a it's, it's, only, it's only a matter of time before like the Paul brothers, Jake and Logan, not, um, uh, not Rand, you. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but they start their own competing healthcare companies. And that's the thing, like YouTubers, that's what YouTubers are going to do next. Oh, of course. It's going to be like, yo, like, subscribe and check that blood pressure. <laughs> Um, so here's here's how, how why um, McMagan thinks that this might be a good idea. By the way, can I just give oh. you my favorite fact on U.S. healthcare? Oh, please do. Okay, so it's a bit nerdy, but 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 here goes. So, firstly, the majority of healthcare spending in America is government spending. So, fifty five percent of healthcare spending in the states owned is spending by the government, right? So, the U.S. as a country spends its government spends as much as the european average on healthcare every year and still doesn't cover uh, all of the population and then you layer an entire private system on top of it so it's just the most inefficient system on the planet but it's worth knowing that already 
that the US is already spending the same as European countries without covering the population. And with that fact in mind, let's see why McMagan thinks this is going to be what fixes that. Yeah, exactly. Oh, wow. Spoiler alert, it won't. Strap in. <laughs> yeah, stra- strap in and, like, again, uh, like put some cotton gauze around your eyes and ears in case your brain leaks out. Bite down on this pencil. Let's start with the little-known fact that most large companies self-insure. They generally pay outside firms to administer their health insurance for them, but they're financially responsible for their claims. A large employer is a little statistical universe with unusually healthy employees balancing out the bills for unusually sick ones. So thank you for explaining insurance to us, Megan. So Well, well, well but let's, let's just pause there for a second, uh-huh. right? So, so in most countries, in, in, in every part of the world, right, people of working age pay more into a health system than they take out of it. So actually, already, the cross-subsidy applies between people who are elderly and the working population, and the working population and kids, not between different parts of the working population. That's why they self-insure, because fundamentally it stops a transfer of risk between them and the people who actually need it, who are the elderly or kids. It just makes no sense, but carry on. <laughs> no, this, this, this makes about as... Like, that's the thing. The first two things we've read today make about as much sense as one another. The capitalist take on the Communist Manifesto and Megan McArdle's <laughs> utterly economically illiterate plan for healthcare. Uh, add in, add in the, so, so they know a little bit about insurance is her point there. Add in the fact that Amazon is really good at technology. Sorry, it was really, really good Sorry, at technology. Sorry, really, really, really good at technology. I don't want to editorialize. Do to her, I'm going to do justice to Megan's prose style. She's a modern day Proust. Thank you. Um, <laughs> add in the fact that Amazon is really, really good at technology. I, I love how specific that is. Good at technology. That's like, oh, I'm good at business. It's good at monopoly. It's like we are good at audio. <laughs> And most healthcare companies aren't. Much medical technology is wondrous, to be sure, but the systems that tie all that technology together are, by the standards of any other industry, a hot mess. There are a number of reasons for this, from privacy laws to provider fragmentation. But it's hard to escape the conclusion that, and she just sort of degenerates into squawking, because Megan McArdle is doing her thing where she's taking a very simple problem, whether it's we should have sprinklers in, hel- in housing high-rises or we should have single-payer health care, and bogging you down in just detail after detail after detail it sort of reminds me of what we were talking about earlier in the episode which was about bill gates and <clears throat> my yeah it's so talking about bill gates and basically selling his products back to um yeah selling his products back to you in the form of charity and i was just thinking obviously like microsoft isn't in this particular example of like setting up healthcare but there's not you know it's not completely inconceivable to think that like microsoft would be in the run to like be providing these types of very very good technology services because after all microsoft is very very good at technology (laughs) despite the fact that like you know the you know that you know the nhs crisis the the systems crisis and how like it was all completely run on like these big probably patch problems in like Windows, was it Windows Seven or like Windows? Yeah, it was like Windows XP, I think, where yeah. they were on. <laughs> also, just let's be clear that what she says is just factually wrong. Yeah. So, so fifteen to twenty-five percent of healthcare costs in America are uh, administration costs, much higher than here, for instance, where they're two percent versus fifteen to twenty-five percent in the mm-hmm. states, depending on which study you read. Um, and what causes that difference is the structure of the health system. So because they have so many different people paying for healthcare, right? You have so many different health insurance plans and different payers. As a result, the system is fiendishly complicated. So it's nothing to do with the use of technology that makes it complicated. It's the structure of the system. And what this proposal is to make 
you know, Amazon co collaborate with others is keeping exactly that structure in place. So just just wrong on the facts. But that's yeah, great. you know what it is? It's like you're driving the wrong direction and you've decided you want to fix it by making your car a little bit faster. So eventually when you get around the world, you'll be where you're looking to go. Yeah, or it's like you're driving the wrong direction, but you fixed the indicator light. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, so what? That, that makes no difference, but carry on. Well, um, and the thing is, she's, so she mostly focuses on getting technology right and creating some, unifi some unspecified unified solution. Uh, but she says, most importantly, you're dealing with human beings that are most stubborn and vulnerable. Your regime of evidence-based medicine will founder on the fact that human bodies are not well standardized. What? Do you, do you have what? a liver? Do you have a liver or lungs? If only we could predict the human body using evidence. <laughs> if only it weren't run by some kind of mysterious black magic. I'm fairly sure that, that in fact, they're quite similar. Yeah, because that's the thing. I'm just going to throw it out there. I love, you know, I love having being in a capitalist system where I get to choose how many kidneys I have. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm looking forward to when like new media companies start taking out hospitals. You like, look for BuzzFeed, where you you need a surgery and they just give you a hat. BuzzFeed <laughs> hospital. Uh. Um, you know, but she's basically sort of facing sort of non-standardized human bodies with their inscrutable livers and humors and stuff. Ah, oh, too much blood. You need to be leaked. I want a second liver. I'm Forty-one kinds of pancreatic cancer you didn't know you had. <laughs> Number thirty-two will shock you. But well, that, that, to be fair, is in fact true. There are many more types of cancer than, than people realize. But let's carry on. Uh, so it says, your attempts to beat down costs will run aground when you discover that many market participants enjoy being the only game in town, like rural hospitals and pharmaceutical manufacturers, and you cannot avoid dealing with them unless you want some combination of legal trouble or employee revolt. I mean, this is absolute drivel. So, so rural hospitals are going bust. Um, at a rate of knots in the States, partly because of the opioid crisis and they're not reimbursed for taking care of people who don't have insurance, like people who have opioid addictions. And uh, Congress passed legislation which means that Medicare cannot negotiate with drug companies on prices. So the idea that somehow we don't know what the problems are or how to solve them is just total drivel. No, that's brain strategy is what that is. It's 12th dimensional chess. Yeah, that, that, seems, that seems like a very normal policy that definitely benefits someone. Here's her, re, here's her indictment of the American health system. But the one reason our healthcare system is such an expensive mess is that Americans hate being told what to do. They demand maximal, I mean, expansive freedom of choice about their health care, and they rebel if they can't get it. Worse still, if they're denied it, they call their legislators who do things like telling insurers to stop denying so many claims for experimental treatments of dubious worth. So yeah, it's just you can't, it's just Americans have too much freedom yeah. for health care. It's definitely the patient's fault. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's nothing to do with the insurance companies or pharmaceutical companies. It's all down to the people. They're actually, they're actually so free that sometimes the level of freedom can cause their bowel to rupture. It's like, it's look, look, my kidneys may have exploded, but I'm not a fool. I'm going to go and find the best deal for the most luxurious care at the premium rate because I'm worth it. And I learned that from a shampoo commercial. All I'm saying is that when the trash future opens its own hospital, because we're going to be billionaires one day, um, we're going to offer the Tresemme version of uh, kidney transplants. <laughs> be luxurious. Absolutely. Salon quality at retail it's, it's prices. It's a kidney transplant that'll make you silky smooth. <laughs> 
hey, your kidneys are so shiny. <laughs> and like Hussein just taps his nose. Trade I, I can't. I can't wait for the commercial. Like you know, like the Axe body spray commercials. There'd be guys walking down, or in Lynx, as it's called in this country, you just guys getting swarmed mm-hmm. by girls. I can't wait for Lynx to produce its own version of a pancreas, <laughs> where you're walking down the street, women are just like lowering their glasses, like, oh. <laughs> Look at how much insulin he's producing. (laughs) Thanks. Damn, that guy's blood glucose levels are properly regulated. (laughs) Man, sugar is sweet, but his blood is perfect. Peter Thiel. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to leave, but before we go into the break, I'm going to leave us on on Megan's final philosophical muse here. You know, maybe Amazon, with big data and smart algorithms, like the one that recently enticed me to buy Russian cake piping tips, a product <laughs> I had previously no interest in or awareness of, can get us to start acting like more responsible healthcare consumers. Can I just point out the blinding the obvious? So we're oh, yeah. saying that the company that's really successful at getting you to buy things you don't want and to consume more shit you don't need is going to be the company that's so good at that that it's going to stop you from consuming anything that you do want and things that you do need. That's that's idiotic. Yeah, that's... <laughs> yeah, I had all my limbs amputated. It was a great deal. <laughs> Two for one on leg amputations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how would Amazon Prime work in Amazon Healthcare? So uh, like you need you need, you need you need like an over you yeah. need like you need like an urgent kidney donation and then some guy like delivers it to, you know delivers it in a prime box. I think it's pr- permanent two for one. <laughs> no, you, you, no, it's like you really need that kidney, and the doctor's like, well, it's going to come between three to ten working days. If however you sign up to our prime service <laughs> and order by five He's got p.m. A point though, like you know, there's nothing there's nothing that's stopping Amazon from like setting up like a tiered like structure of like their own healthcare, right? And isn't that effectively what every like private health insurer does already, right? I was going to say how other health care providers don't offer you a subscription to Emmy Award winning TV shows. <laughs> <laughs> but in the future, they will. That's true. Cool. Well, no, it's okay, that... Well you, wouldn't, well, you wouldn't You wouldn't. illegally download a kidney, or would you? <laughs> <laughs> all right. I think that puts the button on the first segment. Uh, we're going to take a break, and we'll see you all in a second. Good, because I need to be... Ooh. You're saying, no, you don't. Okay. Excellent. So, who is who is Alan Mack, the author of Getting to the Future First, How Britain Can Lead the Fourth Industrial Revolution? Always known as Evangelion Rebuild 5. <laughs> I believe Alan Mack is the conservative MP for Hammond. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and uh, Alan was first elected uh, to Parliament in 2015, and 2017 saw the return of Mack. <laughs> 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 I, I for one, am very excited for when he inevitably like goes on. I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. I actually, I actually regularly chat with Alan Mack on the Matt Hancock MP app, or as he's known in our, as he's known in our saucy girls DM. Alan, I, I love sending uh, him a message on uh, Mac Attack sixty nine. <laughs> <laughs> what what the Mac Attack has done uh, is partnering with Conservative Home, the home of conservatism. 
Um, <laughs> it, it really, like, it, it does what it says in the 10, and it also labels the 10 a 10. <laughs> um, so he has, written, <laughs> he has written this paper that kind of tries to set out the Tory position on the fourth industrial revolution, which is basically like if the first industrial revolution was steam-powered machines, the third industrial revolution was like the advent of computing, the fourth industrial revolution is the advent of automation, AI, uh, and, and similar like exponential technologies, right? And there's this big debate on how to deal with it. Like, how do we deal with the fact that most people are going to be out of work? Uh, and so the conservatives, uh, specifically uh, Mac Attack 69, uh, have written a document setting out a conservative vision for dealing with the fourth industrial revolution. And I'd like to draw everyone's attention uh, to the cover image here. Please zoom in a little bit. Uh, I, I can't. Just lean in. Oh, okay. So I'll Do z- lean in feminism. I'll, I'll, I'll sandbag this bitch. Uh-huh. That robot is thick. <laughs> Those are all sex robots, right? <laughs> I love any robots a sex robot if you use it right. I, I'm really, I'm really intrigued by by this image. That like the two halves are so great. How on one half there's a bunch of like angry people shouting at a bunch of people who look a lot like the Tin Man from uh, the Wizard of Oz, who are apparently taking their job and going through the new employees door of the factory. Meanwhile, on the other side, that, that's under Labour's dystopian future. Ah, yes, Labour, a future for the tin men, not for the few. Um, and, uh, and the other side says positive conservative vision, uh, which involves a load of drones carrying packages, presumably bombs. Online yelling. shopping. Um, the packages are just labeled <laughs> online shopping. I, I love, no, I love how online shopping is going to revolutionize healthcare, guys. It's all my new kidneys being delivered by drone. While some self-driving cars attempt to navigate what appears to be a cabbage patch. That is true. In this dystopia, in this new positive vision, right? We haven't got paved roads yet. <laughs> Absolutely not. Because it's the Mad Max future that all the billionaires are preparing for. Uh, but I love also how then there's a, a, a foreman shaking hands with a robot while two apparently executive slaves are just wearing VR headsets, presumably on a, <laughs> yeah, just presumably on a fake holiday somewhere. I like I like the idea that they're watching VR porn and he is like explaining. He's like, right now, what you have to do is wank these two people off. <laughs> I know, and you really should be wearing a hard hat like me because it can get pretty messy. You have to wear a, so we'll we'll link the we'll link the report in the show description so you can all check out this image. But it 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 really is like wait, wait. like Ben Garrison like got a fever and just started drawing in his sleep. We've not we've not yet covered my favorite part, which is the man who looks a bit like a sort of young. Dick Van Dyke circa diagnosis murder era who's using a 3D printer to build a sort of crude flute. Positive conservative vision, guys. Uh, the industrial future where everyone will be able to build a flute. Flutes, online shopping, cabbage patch, getting jacked off by a robot. Alan Mack can bring all of this to us. Holy shit. So wait, wait, can you go back to the picture? Maybe the two panels are related. So the new jobs that those robots are walking into are actually jobs where they wank off humans while they watch. VR. Yeah, no, this, the, 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 the new employees factory is actually a sketchy massage parlor with yeah. many smokestacks. Ah, and the guy holding the sign that says no jobs in massive letters, he's not actually complaining that there are no jobs for them. He's actually protesting, saying no more hand jobs. <laughs> We're not going to go through the whole of it. But I've got some highlights of what Alan Mack thinks Britain's economy should be in the future. I'm delighted to share them with you, my friendly co-hosts, and our listeners. Hell yeah. This is the macro if vision. If your brains haven't already been ground to dust by the genius of the capitalist manifesto and, and Megan McGriddle. 
As Britain implements a new industrial strategy to secure our prosperity and enhance our productivity after Brexit, we shouldn't forget that we're building on strong foundations. Around 250 years ago, it was Britain that launched the world's first industrial revolution powered by coal and steam and accelerated by new railways, roads, and innovations like Stevenson's rocket, heralding a new era of Britain, British industrial strength. So what immediately jumps out to me with this, and this is what happens constantly, is he does evoke the major innovative potential of the first industrial revolution, which famously didn't claim lots of laborers' lives in limbs. Yeah, powered powered by coal, steam, and the maimed bodies of children who had to climb into weaving machines. Otherwise known as Intel Pentium Processor 1. I took the Science Museum the other, the other week, actually, and I saw Stevenson's rocket. And it's a fantastic thing to see, right, how sort of roughly human the, uh, the, 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 the machine is. But also... How is that relevant to now? Like, it's just this idea that somehow well, we had the first industrial revolution. So now that means that we're building on these great foundations. Well, we had a huge program of deindustrialization in the 1980s and 90s. And actually, our industrial base has been massively weakened. So the argument surely is that we need to take decisive action now, precisely because actually a lot of the foundations that we once had have already been destroyed. And we've got to make sure that we start to rebuild um, for a new future. Uh, you see, Alan Mack has actually anticipated that argument already, much like Megan did as well. Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell are already using automation as an, and deindustrialization, I'll edit that in there, as, as an electoral weapon, mobilizing their supporters against a dystopia they have created themselves in which robots take workers' jobs. Their Luddite-trained union-focused agenda involves, quote, managing new technologies, taxing innovation, and heavy regulation that attempts to put the future on hold. I mean, that is, that is kind of daft, right? I mean, I think if you, if you look at what's really going on with automation... Uh, what it says in the, is that in the 2020s, it's not going to be that it's going to destroy a huge number of jobs. That's quite actually quite unlikely that most of automation and AI will supplement jobs, but it will change who gets the job. So uh, there's a real issue for some people, and managing that transition is a really big question. And the second thing is just that as technology has a greater role in the economy, it drives up inequality. And those are huge questions for society. So this idea that all you need to do is to stand this sort of step back and relax and it will take care of itself just simply isn't true. Like we've had 10 years of stagnating wages and if we don't have some serious policy response to these changes then we're going to have another decade where wages go nowhere as well. So it's just it's just this idea that the answer to all this change is basically to do nothing is, is bizarre. Yeah, I mean, and also it's like the, the fact that technology increases inequality is down to the fact that you can own technology, but you can't own people. And therefore, the way in which the economics of it work are different, which leads me to think that Alan Mack, if he'd been around during the day, probably would have accused William Wilberforce of stifling innovation. <laughs> well, in, that's just it, right? Like in his positive case centers around suggesting that precision medicines will help us live longer, healthier lives, new energy technologies and a more efficient national grid will lower energy bills driverless cars will make roads safer, reduce congestion, and innovation will raise living standards. But he never says for whom. He just assumes that the future will be evenly distributed. Uh, much like Megan assumes that, you know, if only healthcare can get the incentives right, it'll be evenly distributed. And much like sort of the, the guys who rewrote the Communist Manifesto said, oh no, if we can just make everyone nice enough, then everything will be evenly distributed. We don't have to take any action at all. Alan has a few, actually a couple of policies, most of which are kind of milk toast, like increase innovation in R&D, teach kids how to code, the usual shit. 
Send computers to Mongolia. <laughs> <laughs> Teach Mongolian kids how to code. Teaching kids how to code is, is really poorly supported by the evidence, right? Most of the evidence suggests that machines are going to be self-coding pretty soon, or that's already in the foothills of doing that. It's a total waste of time, this idea that you can set up coding colleges. Well, it's like, it's the, it's the same pull-up-your-pants argument that Bill Cosby always said, right? It's the, no, before the allegations, the, uh, you da- damn kids, you know, with your rap music, pull up your pants, learn how to code. Um, and it's the, it's the, it's just another iteration of the, of the, I'm just going to stick with this, uh, that sort of poverty is the result of sort of cultural choices on behalf of the poor. They didn't learn the right thing. They looked the wrong way or whatever. It's utter fucking tripe. Basically, like a lot of, of the policies that he advocates this milk toast thing, but one really stuck out to me, uh, which is that he intends to introduce a new British innovation principle in the UK to counterbalance the effects of the EU's precautionary principle, which can hold back innovation. The, enshrined in the Lisbon Treaty, the precautionary principle can unreasonably burden innovators with having to prove the absence of danger regarding a particular product, service, or procedure. It does not require regulators to weigh potential risks against potential benefits that society may enjoy from technological development and often constrains innovation. So what, what, why the precaution? Why, he's, his, why is Alan Mack's description of the precautionary principle utterly misleading? Firstly, right, he... he um confuses Lisbon principles, which are set by an ecologist in 1997, with the Lisbon Treaty. And the precautionary principle is basically saying you shouldn't start polluting um, and irreversibly destroying the environment without first knowing whether, you know, what the consequences of your actions are. So he takes that and then sort of says that well, that's been extrapolated across the entirety of society. And this is it's just not true. It's just factually false. <laughs> right? I mean, if it was true, then we wouldn't have airbnb or uber or any other innovation so it's just it's simply simply a lie yeah and he says that he wants to replace this principle that doesn't exist with another principle that doesn't exist the british innovation principle would place a statutory duty on all public sector bodies to ensure that whenever policy or regulatory decisions are under consideration the impact on innovation as a driver for jobs and growth is assessed alongside any potential risks from technological development which basically, as far as they can tell, means that if he can prove removing guardrails from around wheat threshers and having the occasional worker fall into the bread uh, will make it 5% more delicious because of its sinfulness, then that's worth it. Hey, blood has a lot of iron in it. Yeah. What, I, what I'm saying is, if Richard Branson wants to build a sort of half-chimpanzee, half-human hybrid, he should be allowed to, and the bureaucrats in Brussels shouldn't be allowed to stop him. Because that's what innovation but, but is. The problem with this is that it, 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 it just assumes a world that simply doesn't exist, right? Uber started without a regulatory response. And the question is not actually, is there too much regulation that is stopping innovation? The question is, is there sufficient regulation in order to make sure this innovation happens in a, in a fair way? So if you take Uber as a really good example... Which he does, in fact. Hmm? Alan Mack actually does take Uber. He says... If we don't if we don't get the conservatives in power, then we'll just have labor who will do stuff like trying to regulate Uber. Yeah, but I think Uber is a really interesting example. Right? So at, at some at some level, uh, I think you can see all the convenience and the upsides to having Uber. And I think sometimes people on the left forget about uh, the status quo uh, ante. Right? What was the what was the state of minicabs before? Well, it was a guy above a fish and chip shop who would probably take fifty percent of. The, the driver's uh, fare, you know, rather than 30% that Uber takes, would, could be pretty unfair, be pretty a poor 
quality employer, unsafe cabs, and all that kind of stuff. And Uber applied a system that was in many ways much fairer. The problem is that then Uber on top of that, right, couldn't just accept the great profits that you could make with that innovation. They then decided that they didn't want to pay uh, national insurance on the employer's side. So they said that these were independent contractors. They didn't want their drivers to be able to get the minimum wage. They didn't want their drivers to get holiday and sick leave and maternity pay. And so they exploited this sort of independent contractor status. Now, in my mind, it's not about finding a way to say, should we ban all app-based transport? That's obviously stupid. But equally, there should be uh, regulations in place that stop companies like Uber uh, trying to exploit uh, their workers by denying them basic rights and try to avoid their taxes. And surely we can all agree that actually you could have a system where a company both provided uh, taxis on an app and also actually paid its taxes and treated its work as well, right? That should not be, on, be beyond the wit of man. So regulating Uber is exactly the right thing. We're not talking about any man, we're talking about Alan Mack. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, no, but it's... It, beyond yeah. the wit of man. <laughs> <laughs> the new Mack principle. <laughs> it strikes me as like, you know, it's, it's like one of those really obvious things, right? Like at this basic level, it's like, we're not complaining that it exists in an app form or like that it will exist in like whatever fucking VR headsets we're all going to be wearing in the next few years. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the problems that we have with these companies are to do with like structural imbalance and like inequalities that exist within particular systems. But for a lot of like Tories, like Alan, especially like these types of Tories who want to appear to be like the new, young, innovative crowd who like, you know, in any other sort of scenario would be head of Activate, um, but they're too old to do that. Like, yeah, it, it sort of feels like, you know, that is that kind of goes beyond them. But if you're talking about innovation in a company, like any sort of conversations around like rights around labor and responsibilities as like employers shouldn't even be entertained. It's just like innovation far. It's like this really caricaturistic way of looking at innovation. So I mean, like in just in the same way that, you know, remember when like Silicon Roundabout was originally a thing um and george osborne was like just all about like silicon valley innovation um you know it's going to be this wonderful like new exciting project that's going to like replicate everything that's happening in silicon valley and sort of he sort of like ignored all the other like structural problems that were beginning to happen in the conversations in regards to like pay and contractors and like you know who should be allowed to work in these spaces and you know what kind of protection should they offer it sort of feels as if like for the tories the conversation that started in like 2013 is still there for them, even though it's sort of advanced for everyone else. Well, it's these are people, and in fact, I'm, I'm this, this really dovetails in with the next sort of section I picked from this uh, this uh, this paper, which is that these people's imagination of what innovation can do for them is so blinkered and tiny. Um, and I'll, I'll read you this. This is how Alan Matt kind of brings the case to life. You know, because he an Uber ambulance. Please tell me it's an Uber ambulance. <laughs> You're not. I mean, it's 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 more banal. Ubulance. Um, so you've just shut down your computer after a long day at work, and like many commuters, you head off in your car to face the rush hour motorway traffic, battling tiredness all the way. So already, technology hasn't liberated you from the world of work. It hasn't liberated you from their daily misery. You're still doing it. Once home, you open. 
But what if while you were driving, you could get down to some macking <laughs> off? <laughs> Once home, you open the fridge, only to find that you forgot to pick up milk on the way home. Sound familiar? Only now, new technology heralded by the fourth industrial revolution is on the verge of causing a social and consumer revolution where driverless cars will let us relax during the commute and smart fridges will order fresh groceries before they run out. He's, a, he's an infomercial. He's not even a person. He's like Barry Scott. He's like, does this sound familiar? This is the best sponge you'll ever own. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Hit. <laughs> We'll let that sit for a second. <laughs> right? But his, his imagination is so tiny. Where it's like, all, it's like what, what's, it's, it, it, the best world he could imagine that we have like, of like, we're like automated post-scarcity economy is an easier commute to your job you hate. And, you know, you're just sort of... on the computer when like they, you know, whoever shuts down the computer but these days. more than that, you like early onset dementia you've given yourself from like really believing Megan McArdle that causes you to just forget to get the milk all the time. You're like, oh, well, I'm still going to have that. I'm still going to forget it. You know, my brain is still, you know, down to its last three neurons. But, you know, at least, you know, the computer will pick up milk for me. That's yeah. the future that they dream of. That's their better tomorrow that's their positive conservative vision yeah well like you know uh, you know i guess the next evolution of this is that you know your just eat order is like automated so you'll get the same meal every time you come back come back home politically there's something quite smart about it right it's basically trying to tell you look it's going to take away some hassle in your life it's all going to be very straightforward very uncomplicated and everything's going to be great and it's it's clearly a, as flawed an account as an entirely dystopian future where the machine's doing everything can we all sort of live in in this uh, this very bleak world, but it's it's just as as idiotic, right? It's trying to sell the public on a story that says this is not complicated and there's only an upside and there's an upside for absolutely everyone. Mm. So it's not only unambitious, but it's also kind of deceitful. Well, it's in, also I think the the thing to note is precisely how middle class all of his examples are. Like yeah. this is not someone whose main struggle is feeding their family or paying their rent or dealing with illness or disability. This is someone who is basically comfortable in a sort of white collar job who sort of is bogged down with a couple of the inconveniences of modern life. Because if you wanted to give deliver a real, a real solution to most of the problems that most people face, you'd have to actually wonder, how are we dealing with work? How are we dealing with disemployment? How are we dealing with like housing benefit? Well, and also with, after this period of wage stagnation, right? And sort of rising prices and all, all that going on. The idea that there's some large segment of the population whose sort of principal concern is forgetting to pick up the milk and everything else is great, just I think is showing a very detached relationship with reality. Yeah, I mean, it's just like one of those, it's like one of those like things that you like come up with in fucking sixth form uh, when it comes to like, imagine what the future, you know, imagine what the future will be like in 10 years. And then in 10 years time, you're thinking to yourself, wow, like a decade ago, I imagined that there'd be like self-driving cars everywhere. But now my, um, now my, uh, wife's boyfriend is trying to get another, um, <laughs> you know, trying to start a relationship with a body pillow. Yeah. It's a very, it's a very <laughs> adolescent view of politics, right? Yeah. This kind of, this kind of way of telling a story of the future. And, I think his, uh, yeah. his, his, his concluding thoughts in this paper uh, is he says, it is impossible to resist the rise of the machines. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> he wants to fuck a robot. <laughs> I know. He, this is a guy who, like, I think he must just constantly be just, just bashing his dick off to, like, <laughs> Borg Vore. Or, like, he, it, he wants to be assimilated Smith. so bad. Um, 
It is impossible to resist the rise of the machines, so we mu must let them lift us towards a global Britain that uses the fourth industrial revolution as a springboard to a more productive, outward-looking economy. This will mean new trading opportunities, more jobs, rising living standards, and more money for our public services. Even though, I might add, he says that taxing the robots will only decrease regulation. So I don't really know how we'll get more money for the public services. Put it on the side of a bus, that's the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yes. That's, it comes from the magical mystery a, box. Yeah, that's a crime against the English language, that paragraph. <laughs> well, I mean, we may not have enjoyed this document, but I will say I've received actually uh, something which was really great from Alan Mack, which I got an advanced copy of his forthcoming gangster rap album, uh, The Ten Mac Commandments. So uh, do check that out. <laughs> it's in stores soon. <laughs> Guys, we've been recording for a little bit, uh, and I think it's time. We, we have our stencil. It's time to write some stuff down the side of a bus. Yeah, let's go. We ready? Yeah. Time All to right. go and get jacked off by a robot. <laughs> <laughs> Please, Milo. It's called macked off when you get jacked off by a robot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. But it shouldn't be taxed. That's the key thing. <laughs> Tom. Nor regulated. Thank you so much no. for being here with us today. Thanks for having me on. It was, it's been great. It's been fun. Um, yeah, our, it's been great. Uh, is there any new publications by the IPPR? Grace has something out now. We we all we have we have a publication a week at, at yeah. the moment as part of the Commission on Economic Justice. Mm -hmm. So we just put out some stuff about changing income tax. Uh, we put out some things about uh, wealth taxation. So we've had a load of interesting stuff uh, yeah. recently. But but have a look at IPPR.org um, to find out uh, more about what we're thinking and talking about. Hell yeah. Uh, I'm here in a personal capacity. Of course. No, Tom is only here as a fan of the IPPR. Exactly. Um, an enthusiast. And uh, our theme song is Here We Go by Jin Sang. Olga, you have one um, more I'd fun. like to use this opportunity to formally ask out Alan Mack. <laughs> so if you're listening to this now, I'd love to have some dinner, maybe stock your fridge. Olga, you're doing a preview for your show soon, right? Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I made uh, that joke earlier. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. That's it. I'm going off for a back sack and Mac. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell, Milo. Stop it. Let, let me end the show. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. Have a good night. I'm hitting close now. Yeah.